0: Our first passage from today comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Our second passage comes from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet. My name's Andrew Wald. And I'm one of the pastors on staff here. The man who's usually standing up here, Pastor David Beatty, was leading our new member class this morning, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. If this is your first Sunday with us, I want to extend to you a special welcome and call your attention to the Hey, I'm Here card that you'll see inside your bulletin and let you know. We, we always appreciate it when everyone fills it out, but especially you, and you can place it in the basket later in the service when we worship the Lord through our giving And if this is your first Sunday with us, you picked a great time to join us because today we're beginning a new sermon series. Last month, we looked at our church's mission and discipleship pathway, which you'll see inside your bulletin. Our mission expresses what we are all about as a church, and our discipleship pathway explains how that happens best. And now, for the next seven weeks, We'll turn our attention to the values that characterize our church. Our values reveal what is important to us. If a detective went snooping around our church and someone were to ask him, well, what matters most to these people, our values would be revealed in his answer. Every organization, every company, every team has values. If you were employed at Google or Apple, you would probably say that your company values innovation. If you worked for Lexus, you might say that that your organization values luxury. If you were employed at Chick-fil-A, you would say that your business values customer service. If you played for the New England Patriots, well, we might wonder, does your team value winning at all costs? I don't see any Patriots jerseys, so I I think I can, I I think I'm safe there. Hey, what what about River Oaks? What about our church? If someone went sniffing around our church, what would they say that we value? Well, over the course of the next seven weeks, we're going to devote one week to each of our seven values and we're going to answer that question. In some sense, our values are reflective of who we already are. They're true about us. But we also feel that there's an aspirational component to all of these values as well, that there's, there's room for growth in each of these values. Our companion guide for this series is entitled, We Are. It was written by our minister of discipleship, along with some contributions from several of the leaders in our church. And we would love to put one of these in your hand. This is what our small groups are going to be using as a companion guide Uh, It's going to be the curriculum that they'll be working through. And even if you're not in a small group, I would encourage you to pick one of these up. When you exit through those double doors right there, you run into our resource center. It's where you can grab these. We always appreciate it if you help us out with, you know, $5 to help cover the cost of printing. But if that isn't possible, know that we still want to put one of these in your hand because this is a wonderful tool for growing in your faith and also following along on Sunday mornings. And if you're not in a small group yet, you can stop by our resource center after the service, and they'd love to help you out with that as well. Now, for those of you who are really observant, you've looked at the back of your bulletin, and you've noticed that our sermon title is incomplete. That's because I'm going to ask for your help filling this in. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you should be able to help with this, because you know that around here, we're constantly referring to one book. We read from this book, we quote from this book, we consult this book, we preach from this book, we carry this book around, we give out reading plans for this book, we support missionaries who are translating this book. In fact, we have one youth leader, it's Dave Hedges, and, and if you're a student and you wear out your copy of this book, he'll buy you a new one. So there's, there's one book that's central to all that we do. Any guesses? The Bible. So w- what we're going to say is that we are Bible-centered. We are Bible-centered. And if this is your church, and you know this to be true, I want to ask you to turn to the person beside you right now, and with a big smile, just look at them and say, we are Bible-centered. We are Bible-centered. But, but what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean by that is that we desire all ages to learn, to love, and to live out God's Word. We want to see all ages learn, love, and live out God's Word. And at the time we have together, I want to highlight why this is so important and then motivate you to adopt this value for your own life as well. And in order to do that, we need to ask and answer two questions. The first one is, what is the Bible? And the second one is, well, what are the benefits to being Bible-centered? So first, what's the Bible? In order to understand our posture towards this book, it's important we answer this question. Because otherwise, you might wonder, well, you know, how come we're not Harry Potter-centered? How come we're not Webster's Dictionary-centered? How come we're not Purpose-Driven Life-centered? Why why are we just Bible-centered? Can we all agree that if this book is no different from other ancient books or other religious writings then it would be silly to be Bible-centered. But can we all agree that if this book is completely unique, if it's a -a one-of-a-kind book, then it makes a little bit more sense to be Bible-centered. And and, and that's exactly why the Bible is so central and important to us. It's because this book is completely unique. It's a -a one-of-a-kind book. The Bible is God's written revelation of who he is, what he has done in the world, and his will for all creation. So it's God's written revelation of who he is, of what he has done in the world and his will for all creation. The Bible is different from every other book because it's first of all divine revelation. The word revelation means unveiling. It's the Bible is God's means of making known that which would previously otherwise be unknown. You'll recall the passage that Abby read for us earlier. It's from 2 Peter chapter 1, and let's just look at this again. Peter writes, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the human writers penned words that are in the Bible as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we see something similar in 2 Timothy 3:16. This is what the apostle Paul tells us. Let's just read this together. He says, "All scripture is breathed out by God." To say this another way, God is the source of the Bible. This truth is often associated with the word inspiration. We say the Bible is inspired. This isn't a claim about the writers. It's a claim about the writings. So when we say it's inspired, it's, it's not kind of like in the same way, like, you know, after the Grammys, maybe someone says, well, that, that artist gave an inspired performance. We're not talking about the writers. This isn't, when we say the Bible is inspiration, it's, we're not saying that the, the individuals who penned these words were people who lived especially holy lives. What we're doing is we're, we're talking about the Bible itself. We're saying God's the source of the Bible. God inspired the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the revelatory agent who worked through human beings using their own personality and background and, and, and so superintended the writing process that the very words that are written are the very words that God wanted written. And if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you probably know that this was Jesus' view of Scripture as well. We see this in Mark chapter 12. So Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, and he asks the people, he says, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? And then David give, or Jesus gives the context for this question by quoting from Psalm 110. But before he quotes that passage, he gives this really interesting preface. Look at what he says. Jesus goes on to say, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and here comes Psalm 110 The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus quotes from the Bible a psalm that's attributed to David. And at the same time, Jesus also attributes authorship to whom? Say it with me. The Holy Spirit. So so Jesus is of the opinion that the, the words of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit. The writers are speaking by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you might also hear us refer to the Bible as the Word of God or God's Word. And that's because when Scripture speaks, it's the same as if God is speaking. When the word of God is open, the mouth of God is open. But do you know where we get this idea to refer to the Bible as the word of God? And he guesses, I think I heard it, Jesus over here. Jesus is right. This is just like Sunday school. So, so we see this in Matthew 15. Jesus says this. He's, he's getting on to the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy. And he says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, now Jesus is going to quote scripture. He's going to quote from the book of Exodus and Leviticus. He says, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the... Okay, help me out here. What does it say? The Word of God. So Jesus is of the opinion that this book is the word of God. It's God's word. And the reason we love this book is because of what it reveals about who God is and what he's done in this world and his will for all creation. The Bible is a beautiful book in its own right, just full of beautiful poetry and prose and pithy proverbs. It's a literary masterpiece in its own right. But that's not why we love this book. When we look at the Bible, it's not like we're just beholding this beautiful work of art, although it is beautiful. Rather, we love it because of what it reveals. I think John Piper offers a a helpful analogy when he says that the Bible is more like a window than a painting. And and to help you understand what he means by that, I want to invite you to imagine with me that you were inside the confines of of a Swiss chalet perched halfway up the mountain on a beautiful summer day. Now, if there is no window in that chalet, you're going to be oblivious to the beauty that's all around you. You're you're going to completely miss out on the splendor and the grandeur that's surrounding you. But what about if there's a window in that chalet? And through it, you can look out and you can see the, 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 the green meadow, and you can see the, the alpine flowers, and you can see the, the pristine glacier lakes, and you can see the, the, the waterfalls and the snow-capped Alps towering up into the sky. Well, then you'd probably appreciate that window, wouldn't you? you? You'd be grateful for that window because of what it revealed to you. And it's the same way with the Bible. The Bible is like a window that reveals God's to us. The Bible is beautiful because it lets us know that that God is is, is a loving Father, that He's a good shepherd. Through the Bible, we discover that God is gracious, that He's compassionate, that He's loving, that He's kind, that He's just. The Bible reveals Jesus to us. We get to see the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we can know how we can inherit eternal life. We know what it is to to walk in God's will and His ways. And when we do that, we know that we're experiencing His best for our lives. That's why we love the Bible. Now, I realize that there's some here that would say, well, you know, how can you be so true, so sure? You know, how, how can you prove this? Prove to me that the Bible is, is completely reliable. You know, what's to say some... Some random guy just didn't go down in his basement and take out pen and journal and write a bunch of just flowery, mystical words that sound kind of spiritual and then come up and say, hey, you know, every word that I just wrote is inspired from God. Anybody can make that claim, right? Can you prove it? And I, I think that's a really good question. And I think it might be helpful if we just devote a minute to thinking about the reliability of Scripture. But I... But I also, don't want to impose a two-for-one special on anyone. I realize that we like those when we, we go to the grocery store, but not on Sunday morning. And so this is, a, this is very easily um, a message that could be uh, um, just its own sermon, its own right. So, so don't worry, we're, we're, you're not going to get two-for-one here. But very briefly, let's just think about the reliability of Scripture. And if I don't answer the question to your satisfaction, let me recommend a couple resources up front, okay? The first is Taking God His Word by Kevin DeYoung, and the next is Can I Trust the Bible by Daryl Bach. These are two authors that I enjoy reading. Our minister of discipleship, David Holcomb, recommends this next one, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And if you want a really short book that's less academic, this one with the really orange cover is called Can I Really Trust the Bible? And I'd be happy to loan this out if you come up to me after the service I'd be happy to put this in your hands. But let's just briefly discuss the reliability of Scripture. Because I do realize that the Bible isn't the only book to make the claim that it's revelation from God. However, the Bible is the only book that can withstand the scrutiny of that claim. And we see that with internal and external evidence. So the strongest internal evidence is this incredible unity and cohesiveness throughout this book that's written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different languages. So think about that. Unless it's inspired by God, it would be impossible for there to be that kind of thematic unity and coherence. The strongest external evidence is the historical accuracy and the fulfilled prophecies. The more historians discover and the more archaeologists dig, the more convinced we can become of the reliability of Scripture. Just as an example of this, at one point in time, many skeptics claimed that uh, you know, a lot of these, these stories in the Bible had no historical foundation. And a favorite target was the uh, the city of Jericho and, uh, and the existence of the Hittite people. And, and just one example was a, a specific Assyrian king that's mentioned in Isaiah 20. However, all that changed as archaeologists began to dig, and guess what? They found the ancient city of Jericho. You know what else they found? The capital city of the Hittite people, and they found the palace of the Assyrian king Sargon that's mentioned in Isaiah 20. And thousands of other archaeological digs have unearthed royal seals and pottery shards that continue to confirm the reliability of the Bible. One example is this obelisk that uh, was found in northern Iraq. Today it's in a museum in London. And it depicts King Jehu, who's, who's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings. It's the guy who ruled in northern Israel 850 years before the birth of Jesus. So what we see is just that history continues to confirm what the Bible says. But that being said, I want to be honest with you. Because here's what I suspect I realize that for the most part, I'm talking to a room full of people who came to church on a Sunday morning when it's raining and 34 degrees outside. So, uh, here's here's my hunch, here's my suspicion, that for most of us in this room, we don't struggle with learning and loving and living out the Bible because we're opposed to it. There isn't anything I've said about the Bible that you would disagree with. You, You see, the issue isn't with our orthodoxy, it's with our orthopraxy. Said another way, the issue isn't with right thinking, that's what orthodoxy is. Rather, it's with right practice or right acting. That's what orthopraxy is. And I I don't think it's so much that we need to shore up our orthodoxy as it is we need to focus on our orthopraxy. And I want to see us approach this book, this Bible, more and more with delight instead of drudgery. And as I mentioned before, we come to love this book by realizing what it reveals, but also by remembering who it's from. As some of you know, I served in the infantry before I felt God uh, nudging me into pastoral ministry, and while I was in the service, I spent a year in Iraq, and, and three months before I deployed, I met my wife, Stephanie, and uh, she was a little out of my league. So, uh, I, I was lacking in courage to, uh, to ask her out on a date. And uh, as time and time got closer to my deployment, I figured, you know what? I'm about to go to war. I've got nothing to lose here. Why not, you know? Uh, and, and so, two weeks before I shipped out, I asked her out on a date. And, um, Being the patriotic gal that she is, I think she felt sorry for me and just wanted to do her part to support the troops. And so she said yes, and we went on like three dates in two weeks before Uncle Sam sent me over to the sandbox. But three dates was enough for me to be completely smitten. So you can imagine my joy when I received my first letter from her. Now, 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 when I received this letter, do you think I uh, just tucked it in my duffel bag and said, I, I'll get to that later? You, you think I folded this up and put it in my back pocket and said, uh, well, you know, when I've got a little more free time, I'll, I'll read that. Anybody think I did that? No. Some of you have been in this situation before. You know what happened? I ripped this open. I read it. I read it multiple times. In fact, I, I saved... All the letters she wrote me while I was in Iraq. And because I love Stephanie, I came to love her words. And I think it's the same way with the Bible. When we love God, we love his word. If the Bible is from God and He's the one that created us, and He loves us with an everlasting love, and He He, he made an infinite sacrifice to redeem us and draw us to Himself. Shouldn't we be interested in His letter to us? Now recognize His His, his letter does contain some long genealogies. But, but he, he, here's, here's the best way, I think, to think about this. The, the, the Bible is kind of like a well-balanced meal. The genealogies are like the spinach and the kale. You know, they might not be your favorite, but in some way... They're good for us because 2 Timothy 3.16 goes on to tell us, ever says that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful for us. And so if it's in there, it's going to be useful. It's going to be good for us. But we know there's also other portions that are sweet and satisfying and rich. And here's the thing. I, I just want to push us along. I want to motivate us. I want to excite us to learn, to love, and to live out this book. And I want to do that just by reminding us of the benefits of being Bible-centered. You know, there's corporate benefits and then there's individual benefits to being Bible-centered. Do you know what happens corporately whenever a group of people get serious about learning, loving, and living out God's Word? Well, that culture begins to change in a positive way. We see this in the Old Testament. During the reign of Josiah, God's Word is discovered during some temple repairs. And Josiah hears it. He's convicted. He gets all the people together. He has it read out loud. They hear it. And then they begin living it out, and and like a revival breaks out. It's a bright spot for the the nation of Israel in what was otherwise a a downward spiral that began after the death of King David. Something similar happens after the Babylonian captivity. The Israelites have returned to the land. They're floundering, and Ezra comes along. And this, this is what we know about Ezra. Here's what the Bible tells us. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statues and rules in Israel. So here's a man who set his heart on God's Word. He's learning it. He's committed to doing it, and he's teaching it to others. And as God's Word goes out, guess what happens? Another little revival breaks out for the nation of Israel. When it comes to the corporate benefit of being Bible-centered, the proof is in the pudding. There's never been a group of people who became serious about learning and loving and living out the Bible and then watched their culture go down the drain. There's never been a community that, that, that got serious about this book and then sat back and said, well, that was a bad idea. We shouldn't have made that so central to our lives. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If you show me a group of people that are serious about this book and they hold it in high regard and they're living it out, I'll show you a community that's flourishing. Just think about the Moravians. If there ever was a Bible-centered people, it was the Moravians who founded this this area of Winston-Salem. When these refugees from Bohemia and Moravia began arriving on the estate of Count Zinzendorf in Hernhut, Germany, they came together each day for morning and evening devotions, just consciously placing themselves in the context of God's Word. And after a short time, Count Zinzendorf gave the people what he called a watchword. It was just a verse for the day to meditate on. And not long afterwards, it was the year 1731, Count Zinzendorf decided to go ahead and put together 365 of these daily texts, one verse for every day of the year, in a book that was published. And that was, that was the, the first publishing of the daily texts. Here's what happened. As this little community of people, these tiny refugees, devoted themselves to prayer and God's word, God used this tiny village to have a global impact. They sent missionaries all over the world. The very first Moravian missionaries were two young men who heard about the evils of slavery and they wanted to minister to the African slaves on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas. And as you might imagine, the power brokers of the day, they didn't like that idea and these young men encountered a lot of resistance. When they arrived in Denmark, they were seeking passage to the West Indies. They were having no luck. And at just a very critical moment in time, they read the daily text for that day, which was Numbers 23, 19. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will not fulfill it? And reading these words encouraged them. They eventually found passage on a Dutch ship headed over there. They got ridiculed and mocked the whole way. They land on the island. They, they encounter disease and sickness and hunger and hardship. But we see in their journals how God's words sustained them during this time. And what happened was they began a work that later spread to reach thousands of people on the island. And the practice of, of a daily text was so beneficial to the Moravians, we thought we'd adopt a similar practice this year during Lent. So Lent begins 10 days from now. That's Ash Wednesday. It's February 14th. And what we're going to do this year during Lent, the, the period from Ash Wednesday to Easter, is we're going to send out just a single daily verse and a short prayer via a text message. And the point of this is just to help us absorb more of God's Word and to grow in our prayer life. And if you'd like to receive those daily texts, just pull out your phone right now. It's very simple. Just text the word Lent to that number on the screen. And you'll receive that. And we'll grow together. It kind of be like the Moravians. We're all looking at the same verse every day. It's just going to be neat to see what the Lord might do through this practice. Learning, loving, and living out God's word, it can change communities, but it also benefits us personally. We see this clearly in the passage that Abby read for us earlier from Psalm 19. I'm just going to invite you to look with me now. I hope you got that number. If not, it's in your bulletin. In this Psalm 19, the psalmist is telling us what God's Word is and how it benefits us personally. Listen to what he says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So how does the Bible benefit us personally? Well, first of all, We see it right here, it revives our soul. We see it in verse 7, it revives our soul. It refreshes us and renews us. You know there isn't anything inherently sinful with watching a little TV in the evening to unwind? Unless, of course, you're watching something that would be displeasing to God. But how often do we go to the TV or the internet or a social media feed thinking that will recharge us? Now here's what I know, these, these, these outlets, you know, they can make us laugh, they can take our mind off the stresses of the day, but here's what I've also discovered. That they can help us escape and to check out, but the thing about the Bible is that I feel like it does the opposite. It revives us, it recharges us, it helps us lean more deeply into life, and, and it reveals to us the joy of living life according to God's ways. Here's the second benefit we see in Psalm 19. It reminds us that God's word will renew our minds. We see this in verses 7 and 8. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It enlightens the eyes. Here's how it does this. As we read the Bible, we discover God's ways. And when we discover his ways, we gain his perspective. And then his thoughts begin to become our thoughts. And, and here's what I know, you, you can be like a walking encyclopedia, you can solve complex math problems, you can go undefeated on Jeopardy and not be wise. You can have a lot of knowledge, but that's different from wisdom. And when we, we, we grow in knowledge without growing in wisdom, it can be like blowing up a balloon in front of your face. Eventually, it can get so big that it can obstruct your vision and become a liability. And I feel like the same thing can happen when we we grow in knowledge without growing in wisdom that comes from God's Word. But when we immerse ourselves in God's Word, we're equipped to see clearly and to discern, to know what would be best in every situation. Finally, we see in verse 8 that God's Word rejoices our heart. In Scripture, we gain a perspective that leads to contentment and to fulfillment and satisfaction. Walking according to God's Word brings deep, a joy, uh, deep, just abiding joy that isn't like the, the fickle and fleeting buzz that can come from a night out on the town or getting a bunch of likes on a Facebook post. You know, the most joyful people I know aren't the ones necessarily who have the most money or have the most toys. See, this isn't true in your own life as well. The people I know who have the most joy are the ones who just seem to be the most steeped in God's Word. And as a way of closing, I want to lead us in a time of reflective prayer and invite the Holy Spirit just to speak to us now as it relates to our relationship with this book. And similar to, to, to how Pastor David led us last week, I'm going to put a a verse up on the screen. I'll read it for us. And then I'm going to just allow time for reflection. And then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer as a way of closing. This is from the book of James. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, forgive us for the times we have been hearers of your word and not doers of it. We invite you to search our hearts with the light of your word and reveal to us our sin. May your word be an instrument in the hands of your spirit that you use to cut away all that is unholy and and impure so that we can be transformed into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you bow your head and close your eyes and continue to pray? Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but revealing Yourself to us and revealing to us the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And as Your Word has examined us this morning, I speak for myself and I'm sure I speak for others when I say that You have searched us and we have been found wanting. We know that Your Word is supposed to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we know that we have not lived according to your statutes and precepts as we have, as we should have. We know we have not been like Ezra. We haven't been committed to to studying this book and then to doing it. And we repent and we pray that you would work in such a way that we would be the Ezra's of our day and that we would set our heart fully on your law, that we would place ourselves under it and that you would give us the strength to do it and to share it with others. And if you're here and you recognize that previous to this moment that your posture towards God's word has been one of suspicion or even judgment of it and you want to change that, if you want to align yourself with with, with what God has revealed and you want to discover the joy of being in fellowship with Him, the best way to do that is by embracing what the Bible reveals about Jesus. And And you can do that now just by praying a prayer like this. You can say, God, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to be my substitute. I realized that He lived the perfect life I could never live. And that He bore the punishment for my sin. And then rose from the dead. And I acknowledge Him to be my Savior and my Lord. And I want to follow Him all of my days. Amen.